Today's sermon comes from Luke 16, 1 through 14. He also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do so that when I'm removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. Everyone knows there's a, a few hot-button topics uh, that can cause a conversation to go nuclear. Uh, religion, politics, health, death. Uh, Wells Fargo did a recent survey and they uncovered something that was actually pretty surprising to them. And that is as they surveyed people t- uh, on the most difficult topic to have a conversation about. The, the number one clear winner was none of what I just mentioned. It was money. In fact, 44 pe- 44% of people said money is the most, or, or a conversation about personal finances is the most difficult conversation to have. Far above what we would probably expect was way up there. Uh, death, 38%. Politics, 35%. Although they probably didn't pull it right now in this season. <laughs> Uh, religion, 32%. So here we go. We're going to talk about money this morning, the, 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 at least according to the polls, that topic that you don't want to talk about. What a great way to introduce a sermon. We're going to talk about money. Here's why we're going to talk about it. Jesus talks about it in Luke 16, but he talks about it in the Gospels more than any other hot-button sin issue. Even more than sex and sexual immorality, money is at the the top of the list for Jesus. And what he does in the Gospels and throughout the New Testament, but specifically in the Gospels, is he calls us to this radical generosity. And the question is, why? Why radical generosity and, and how? How do we become, or what is the key to generosity when it comes to our money? And the answer is one word. It's, it's what this parable is about. It's stewardship. 
But then the question is, why is stewardship the key to generosity? First, because you are stewards of money that is not yours. Look at verse one of Luke 16. It says, there was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. So what we have here, just to set the story, is a very wealthy man who hires someone to manage his estate, to manage his, his finances. And the key here is that the manager doesn't own anything, right? The, the, the wealthy man owns everything. He asks this manager to take care of it, to steward it. Think a combination of COO, CFO, that this man hired him to take care of his real estate, of his estate, but also to invest his money. And, and what the manager decided was, was binding. The key here, and, and what Jesus is trying to teach, is that this manager did not own the money or the stuff that the wealthy man did. And he was calling him to simply steward it. In the same way, God owns all of your money, and he calls you to steward it. Now, some people, I've heard this reply, uh, and, and certainly if you're in America, you say, wait a minute, wait a minute. I've worked hard for my money. I've worked hard for my money. It's not God's money. It's, I've worked hard for it, right? It, it's mine to do what I wanna do with it. Well, then you have to ask the question, what has enabled you to work hard? I mean, let's just, we'll just reduce it to a bare minimum. To work hard, you, you actually have to be alive. You have to be breathing. Why are you alive? But, but even if we go beyond that, obviously you're alive because God made you, God put you here, but go beyond that to even uh, talents and, and circumstances that God gifts us with talents, he gifts us with circumstances. Uh, take circumstances, for example. If you were born into a, a poor family in a poor village on top of a mountain in, somewhere in South America, your hard work there would not produce what your hard work has produced here. Right? That God, he, he determines our circumstances. They're from him. We don't own them. Take talents, for example. Uh, gifts and talents that God gives you. I, uh, I read a quote from a college football coach very recently. I won't say who it is. It says this, greatness is achieved, it is not given. Now, greatness is achieved, it is not given. Now, I understand what's behind that quote coming from a college football coach, right? It means you work hard, right? You don't just get handouts, right? You, you work hard. But, but there's something wrong with that quote. The reason that I am not as successful an NBA basketball player as LeBron James, although I, I think I could probably take him one-on-one, -on -one, the reason I'm not as successful as a basketball player is not because I have not worked as hard at basketball as LeBron James. He's gifted. He's talented. We're given gifts. We're given talents, and it all comes from God. Great example of this in uh, 1 Chronicles 29. This is when David is finishing his reign as king, and Solomon is about to be anointed as king. And David is giving of his personal finances, he's giving offerings to the temple that's being built. 
And he encourages God's people to do the same. Listen to what he says. And now this is David, a very wealthy man. Very wealthy man. He says, but who am I and what is my people that we should be able thus to offer willingly? For all things come from you and of your own have we given you. For we are like strangers before you and sojourners as all our fathers were. Our days on the earth are like a shadow and there is no abiding. Listen to this. O Lord, our God, all this abundance that we have provided for building you a house for your holy name comes from your hand and is all your own. God owns everything. And everything you have, including your money, is from him. Therefore, and this is an important therefore, to not be generous with your money is not just stinginess, but it's robbery. If it doesn't belong to you, if you don't own it, if God owns it, then to not be generous with it is not just being stingy, it's actual robbery. That's what God talks about in Malachi chapter three. God's people have rebelled against him. They've turned from him. And he says through the prophet Malachi, he says, he says, return to me. You've sinned, return to me. And the people say to God, how are we to return to you? And this is what God says in verse eight of Malachi three. Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Now, what's the tithe? Well, in the Old Testament, it's 10%. And, and of course, in an agricultural economy, it was, it was 10% of the harvest, right? They, they had crops, and so they would... They would bring in the harvest and 10% would go to God. You say, well, well, what about the New Testament? Well, you won't find 10% in the New Testament, but here's what you will find. When you go from Old Testament to New Testament, everything is expanding. I mean, the Holy Spirit that goes from um, dwelling in, in certain uh, you know, prophets and believers to post-Pentecost, the Holy Spirit being poured out into all believers right, expanding. The gospel in the Old Testament, certainly going to the nations, but by, by the time Pentecost comes around and following in the book of Acts, the gospel's exploding and expanding. Everything from old to new is bigger, expanding, broader, and so we can make the conclusion it's, it's at least 10%, right, that God calls to radical generosity, that it's at least 10%. And God says, I want you to give away at least 10% of your income. And you say, Keith, that's a lot. Well, let me, let me ask you this. Imagine if someone came to you and said, and for some of you that are financial managers, this actually happens day to day. Someone came to you and said, I want you to manage my money. And you can keep 90% of the returns and I'll keep 10%. Now, how would you respond to that? You take it, it's amazing. Some of you that are financial managers are going, wow, 90%, I get 1%. 90%, God says, listen, it's my money. And I give it to you. And I ask for at least 10% to give, be given back. And oh, the 90% is still mine. 
And I want you to use it in a way that honors me. And I want you to use it in a way that is for my best interests. But the point is this, that you are stewards of money that is not yours. It belongs to God. And he wants you to give generously. And that's the first key to generosity is at the very outset recognizing I don't own this money. It's the Lord's. Second key to generosity, understanding that you're a steward of true wealth that is not here. You're a steward of true wealth that is not here. Now let's go back to the parable for a second. So you have this rich man, finds out that his manager has been wasting his possessions, so he fires him, gives him his notice. And this, this manager is now trying to figure out what am I gonna do? How am I gonna provide for myself? In verse three, he says, I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg, which is him saying, I'm not strong enough or fit enough to do manual labor and I'm ashamed to beg. And we can assume that he probably is not gonna get another job like the one that he had, doesn't have good relationships in town. And so he goes, what, what am I gonna do? And he comes up with an idea. And that's where in verses five to seven, we read that he calls in the master's debtors. He calls them in and he reduces their debt. Now, there's, there's speculation and theories as to what's happening here, and we're not exactly sure. There's a number of ideas of what's happening when he's reducing the debt. One is that he's knocking off the interest, right? You'll notice that the, the debt reduction is 100% on the oil and 25% on the wheat, which some have noted in that day, that was about the interest rate for those products. For oil, it was high because it was a risky endeavor and the oil would spoil. And for wheat, it was about 25%. So some say maybe he's knocking off the interest. Others have noted, and this is very probable, that he actually cuts out his rates, right? What's owed to him, his rate for, for lending this money. And that would fit well because the master says, he praises them, right? Which would be, hey, that makes the master look good because the person owes less, and it gives this, this manager friends now, right? Because he cut the rate out. Either way, the point is verse four. Look at it. The manager says, I have decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. This manager valued long-term relationships and friendships more than he did short-term monetary gain. And that's the point Jesus is making. And he, and he concludes it in verse nine when Jesus says, and I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth. That, that just means worldly wealth. So that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. What is Jesus saying? Friendships and relationships are more valuable than money. That's what he's saying, that friendships and relationships are more valuable than money. Why? Because those that are relationships and friendships in Christ outlast death, and money does not. One commentator, he, he says it this way. Although these things, your property, your money, your ability, and your time belong to this life only, Jesus says what will happen to you then when you pass into the afterlife will depend on what you are doing with them here and now. Make sure that, you, that your use of your money brings you into a fellowship of friends that will survive beyond death. 
You see, what he's saying is use your money to secure true wealth. And what is true wealth? Verse 11, true riches, it's, it's heaven. That that's what Jesus is describing here, it's heaven. Well, you say, what, are, what is the wealth of heaven? What are the true riches of heaven? It's not harps. It's not streets of gold. That's not mansions. No, it's relationships and friendships with God, with one another. That that's the wealth of heaven. It's relationships of love in a place where love will be perfect and harmonious. Jonathan Edwards, he, uh, in his sermon, Heaven is a World of Love, he describes how love is, there will be a love in heaven that's perfect that we don't know here because love here is oftentimes marked by pain. He says in heaven, there will be a perfect love, that that's the true wealth of heaven, the true riches of heaven. And he describes in his sermon the, the, the barriers, or the five barriers to love here on this earth. He says this, barrier number one, we all want to be loved for our own sake and not wonder if someone loved us for what we have done or what we can provide for them. You know how painful that is when you find out that somebody loves you because of what you can get them or what you can provide them? That's painful. Barrier number two to love in this world we want to express our love without impediment. We want to express our love freely, but what happens? Our sin and pride get in the way, doesn't it? Certainly this happens in marriage, where I don't express my love because I want that person to feel the pain I've felt, or you know, the sin and pride gets in the way, and we can't express it how we want to. Right? Barrier number three to love in this world, we want to love mutually. You know how painful it is to love someone and not get love back to love someone and pour out yourself and nothing in return or not as much in return. Barrier number four, when you love someone, if they're not happy, it destroys your happiness. Now, this is true for parents. Parents, you will never be happier than your most unhappy child. You'll never be happier than your most unhappy child. Right? Love is, there's a, there's a pain to love in this world. And then barrier number five, we never want to be separated from the people we love. Death brings separation. Right? That's painful when, when a loved one dies and we're separated from them. All those barriers are removed in heaven. All those barriers are gone, which is why Jesus can speak of eternal dwellings and true riches and, and valuing friendships and relationships in Christ that are the start of what will continue in heaven for eternity, that that is where the true wealth is. That true wealth is not here. Oh, it's here in part in Christ, but we're still in a broken and sinful world. And so becoming a generous steward is recognizing you're a steward of money that's not yours, but it's recognizing that you're a steward of true wealth, relationships and friendships of love in Christ that will go on for eternity that'll outlast death. And then third, why is stewardship the key to generosity? Because you are stewards who invest in that which cannot be lost. Go back to the parable, right? We've seen in verses four to seven that this manager reduces the debt. 
And if we assume, which I think it's a good assumption, that he removed his fees, we see that this manager invested in friendships over short-term monetary gain. He could have taken his fees. But short-term monetary gain is short-term, and he realizes that I need relationships and friendships that will be there for me. And so he invests, he takes this money and literally gives it to them to invest in the friendships, to invest in the relationships. And the master praises him. He says, you're wise, you're clever. And then Jesus says in verse nine, basically he says this, I want you to invest your worldly wealth in friendships that will outlast death and span eternity. And you say, what are relationships that will outlast death. It's relationships where two people are in Christ, which means what? That people need Christ, which means what? That the word of God that that will last forever needs to connect with people so that people can come to know Christ and be in Christ, that you can have friendships and relationships in Christ that will outlast death. And Jesus is saying, so invest your money in that. Well, where does that happen? It happens in the church. Church takes the word of God and connects it to people. And so you invest in, when Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus is saying, I will build my church. And then he says, will you please invest in what I'm building? That's what he's saying. Invest in what I'm building. I'm building my church. So spend your money there because I'm building a church that's gonna outlast death and span eternity that the kingdom of God is advancing. Interesting in verse eight, know what Jesus says. He says, the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And he's saying that the, the sons of this world are more intentional with how they spend their money than those who are in the kingdom. If you remember uh, years ago, I don't think the commercial plays anymore. It was the ING commercial. Remember that, where there was this big number that someone would carry around on their hip? And the idea was that this, this number was the, uh, their retirement nest egg. And they'd walk up to somebody and say, you know, the whole thing was, what's your number, right? What's the number, what's the goal you've set for your retirement nest egg? And now everything you do intentionally is moving towards that goal. And I think what Jesus is saying, do we think that intentionally about how much we wanna give away by the time we retire? Do we think that intentionally about how much we want to give away to the kingdom when we retire? 2005, Thomas Cannon died of colon cancer in a hospital in Richmond, Virginia. He was 79 years old. And many dubbed him as the, uh, the poor man's philanthropist. Age three, his father died. His mom remarried, and they, they moved into a three-room wooden shack. He grew up without running water, without electricity. When he was an adult, he, um, he worked for the United States Postal Service. Never made more than $25,000 a year working for the United States Postal Service. And at the end of his life, well, before he died, he and his wife uh, retired, and they retired in poverty. By the end of his life, he had given away $156,000 to people in need. Now, if you do the math, that's 
him giving away at least 20% of his income for 33 years. The person that, that wrote his biography said this, not many people would consider living in a house in a poor neighborhood without central heat, air conditioning, or a telephone and working overtime so that they could save money to give away. Now, this isn't to lay a guilt trip. I'm not telling you to go sell your house and not have running water and not have electricity. That's not the point. The point is, are you thinking about, is there a goal out there of this is how much I wanna give away? If you have a retirement nest egg, there's, there's nothing wrong with that. But do you have a, a, a giving away goal? I wanna give to the kingdom. I wanna give to God's church. I wanna give to that which will outlast death. That's the point. Stewards spend money on that which lasts. That's Jesus' point in verses eight and nine. What he's saying in verses eight and nine is this, that, that your money will fail. When it fails means that, that your money will not pass into heaven. Your bank account will not pass into heaven. Your house will not pass into heaven. Your car will not pass into heaven. Your investment portfolio will not pass into heaven. Your retirement nest egg will not pass into heaven. It will fail. And Jesus says, are you spending your money on that which will last, that will outlast death? Which he's saying are friendships, a fellowship of friendships in Christ, which is really just the definition of the church, which is the definition of the community that God is building in Christ that will span eternity. Are you spending your money on that? It's been amazing. In the past year, six months to a year, we have been notified of a donor in our denomination, the PCA, that gave, it's anonymous, and I can only tell by how much they're dispersing out to churches, probably on the order of five to six million dollars, that they are dispersing to churches in $50,000 increments who are doing church planting projects and are doing leadership multiplication programs, all with the purpose of renewing people in Christ, connecting people to the word of God to Christ, connecting communities to Christ, all this renewal that's gonna outlast death. And what's amazing to me about that is I don't know who these people are. They're anonymous, but I, I suspect they've probably gotten into retirement and they got this big old nest egg of money somehow that God gifted them with. And they're, they are giving it away to churches throughout the United States, PCA churches throughout the United States, to see the word of God connect with people, to see people come to Christ, to see communities come to Christ, because they realize that they are to spend their money on that which will last. On this fellowship of friends, of relationships in Christ that God is building. They're investing in that which cannot be lost and they recognize it's not theirs. So where's this leave us? Let me make this final point with some application. If at, if at a heart level you grasp this concept of stewardship, you grasp that you're stewards of money that's not yours. You're stewards of true wealth that's not here fully, that it's, it's in heaven, that's coming. 
and that you're stewards who invest in that which cannot be lost. If you get those three concepts and they grab hold of your heart, it will affect the way you spend your money. It will affect the way you give. It's, it's those that when they get to a heart level, not just up here, but at your heart, will, will, will cause you to be generous, radically generous. So what, what should it produce? Let me just give you three takeaways that I think this understanding of stewardship should produce. First, never make money at the expense of people. Never make money at the expense of people. Number two, put your money in people's needs, not just a savings account for yourself. Put your money in people's needs, not just a savings account for yourself. And then third, tithe to the church. Now, if I were preaching at somebody else's church right now, I'd probably be incredibly more bold with that statement. So let me just do this for a second. Can I take my pastor hat off and speak to you as a fellow tithing member of Christ Church East? Tithe to the church. This is the place, the church, not just here, in all gospel-centered preaching churches in Jacksonville and around this country and world. But this is the place where the word of God is being connected to people. And when they come to Christ, they have a relationship with Christ. They now are in friendship with you, with the church that will span eternity and outlast death. And so Jesus says, I'm building my church. Will you give towards it? Now, let me put my pastor hat back on for a second. Vision 2025, we've rolled this out over the past couple months. It's a vision for the renewal of Jacksonville in Christ. It's to renew neighborhoods and communities and people in Christ. It's to get the word of God to them, which means we have to go to get it to them. We don't, have, we don't require that they travel here. We go to the different pockets of the city and we bring the word and we bring a fellowship of friends that are, that are eternally secure, outlasting death that come and bring the same good news to those in the community that they're sent. That's the vision, is to plant community groups and plant churches and plant congregations. And that takes money. It takes money to plant churches. It takes money to plant new community groups. It takes money to bring on staff to execute such a vision that we believe is God's because he wants to renew Jacksonville and we wanna follow him in that. And so Jesus says, will you give generously? to the church and all the ministries that flow out of the church where the kingdom of God is expanding. Will you, will, you, will you understand, Jesus says, that you're stewards of money that's not yours. You're stewards of true wealth, friendships, relationships, a fellowship that's gonna outlast death in Christ in heaven where all the barriers of love will be removed. And that you're stewards who invest in that which cannot be lost. Let's pray. Father, you tell us in 2 Corinthians 8, 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Jesus, you are the true steward. You are the one that lost all of your wealth to turn enemies into friends 
And for those of us here that have trusted you, we are recipients of that and no longer enemies, but friends. And we have a friendship with you, Jesus, that will outlast death, that will span eternity. Father, there are those here this morning that haven't responded to your son, Jesus. And I pray, I pray that they would trust you, Jesus, what you've done for them by emptying yourself on the cross, taking their sin and paying for it, that they could be reconciled to you. Pray that they would receive you, Jesus. And Father, with our eternal position secure, with our eternity secure with you because of your son, Jesus, would you cause us to be radically generous, to give our money away and to invest in that which cannot be lost, to invest in your church that is making the invisible kingdom of God visible and expanding. That, Father, one day, we read in Revelation 21, when we are in the new heavens and the new earth and every barrier of love has been removed and we experience in full the true riches of heaven, relationships of perfect, harmonious love with each other and with you, may that vision be what prompts us today to give freely that more and more people could be a part of that and have that kind of eternal security. And we pray this all in Jesus' name, amen.